Welcome to Marvelous Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings of one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and let me start off this week's show by apologizing to my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, because we're going to do something that Aaron just hates, which is pull a Zapruder film on some of the more recent Marvel-related trailers, so... But, hey... I, I haven't seen them, so you can uh, tell me in great detail all about the little things that you're seeing, because I've yet to peep any of it. Tell me about how it goes back into the left. <laughs> <laughs> you did that joke, not me. Okay, uh, we're going to start with the Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. trailer that just dropped for season six. Eight seconds in, it features the title card, which reads, spoiler, Agent Phil Coulson is dead, which... The way season five ended with Phil and Agent Melinda May opting to spend the remainder of his days in Tahiti because, you know, what? It was poetic. It was beautiful. It was good. It was right. I liked it. I thought it was a good closure. And we all know Phil's been dead before. This ain't nothing but a thing. No, no, that's the thing. Exactly. (laughs) In fact, that's the thing I loved from the pilot where they had Agent Grant Ward saying, well, I'm clearance level six. I know that Agent Coulson was killed in action before the Battle of New York. I got the full report and only to have Phil step out of the shadows and say, welcome to level seven. But the way they handle it, it, the last image you see in this trailer is is Phil (laughs) totally in black leather, slowly turning toward the camera and there's this unnamed character, off-screen character going, you're from S.H.I.E.L.D., and Phil's response is, never heard of it. So the prevailing theory now is that this undead Coulson is a Kree? Mm, okay. Which, I guess, nicely dovetails into what Captain Marvel is setting yeah. up. But before I forget, how is it that you and I, who do this podcast about Marvel-related news, missed... The November 2018 news that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had been renewed for a seventh season, 13 episodes, and will begin airing in June of 2020. I was kind of floored by this. So, you know, I, I, I made some calls. I, I talked to some folks at ABC Studios, and they came back and they said, well, look, the same day ratings for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. have always been pretty iffy. I mean, the, you know, the show... The pilot debuted with an audience of 12 million, but it, it's never reached those levels since. But when you get to the whole binge-watching, on-demand viewing, this show really excels. So especially, I guess, because coming up on season seven, it was up to ABC Studios to pick up the actors' options on their contracts, because mm-hmm. otherwise they could see, you know, they could go off and get cast in other shows and that sort of thing. So very early on it's like okay we're taking your options and we're definitely going to do a season seven and plan accordingly more to come so maybe in season seven phil will go back to being dead or we could end up like uh was it duplicity where we end up with like a dozen colson's and each one's just a little bit dumber than the one before it i like me a smart colson but but again that's an interesting idea we mentioned captain marvel a little bit earlier the international trailer for the March 8th release just Any dropped. new footage? The new footage actually, in a weird sort of way, what got the fan community excited was the fact that you actually saw at one point Nick Fury hand off the pager that we saw at the end of Avengers Infinity War uh. to Carol Danvers. So now we have a piece of connective tissue that that finally connects uh, Infinity Wars to Captain Marvel. And, Thank God and Marvel put a link in their movies. They never get a chance well, to do that. 
Oh, and my, I can right. rest Get easy now. We're all hopeless dweebs. What can I tell you? <laughs> Every detail um, counts. We, we okay. know. Just a chicken quick with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse mm-hmm. continues to chug along at the box Good. office. In fact, I was just talking with a friend there at, at Sony Pictures Animation and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse stateside has hold a, sold $169 million worth of tickets, which is... The reason that's weird is that the international box office total just this weekend also it's now stands at $169 million. That almost never happens where you end up with the exact equal right. amounts. But total box office of the film to date is $339 million worldwide, which when you factor in what it costs to promote this film, what it costs to make this film, $90 million, and the cut that went to exhibitors right now to the first time Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is Into the Black. Hooray! Uh, or went out of the red and went into the black. So uh, it's not only winning trophies, it's now making money for Sony. Good. Little wonder that the studio is now doing full steam ahead with its Into the Spider-Verse sequel. They've hired Joaquin Dos Santos to be the director mm-hmm. and writer David Callahan, not to be confused with Spider-Man, <laughs> is working on the script for the sequel, which I'm told is going to feature a romance between... Miles Morales, a.k.a. the Spider-Man, and Gwen Stacy, a.k.a. Ghost Spider, a.k.a. Spider-Gwen. And while we're talking about screenwriters, Columbia, which sort of shares the studio space with Sony, they've hired a screenwriter for Venom 2. Kelly Marcel, she was one of the many writers who was brought in to work on the script for Venom, and evidently the studio liked her work so much that they not only tapped her to write the script for the sequel, but she's also going to become an executive producer on Venom 2. And quick side note for Disney fans, one of the other things that Kelly is working on, which I guess is going into production in just a couple of Mm -hmm. months, is Cruella, which is a prequel to 101 Dalmatians that explains how Cruella DeVille became Cruella DeVille. Of course it is. All right, but here's the thing for the Marvel fans out there. Guess who they've tapped to play Cruella? Tom Holland. Well, no, that that no, that would be challenging, but actually it's Emma Stone, ah. uh, who given that we're talking about a lot about Spider-Gwen here, she played Gwen Stacy in 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man and the sequel Amazing that, Spider-Man uh, Columbia yeah. put out in 2014. And I guess while we're talking about Sequels and prequels and that sort of thing. You heard about what's going on with Doctor Strange 2, Not right? a peep. I've had my head in the sand for like the last couple of weeks. It's, it's been busy in the house. Okay, not a problem. Doctor Strange 2, it's official. It's a go now. It's going before the cameras. In 2020, Scott Derrickson, who co-wrote the first film and also directed it, has agreed to come back and helm the sequel. The original Doctor Strange was released to theaters in October of 2016, the sequel has been slotted to go out in May of 2021, which suggests that whatever role Doctor Strange plays in Avengers Endgame will then reposition the Sorcerer Supreme as this character that can actually carry a summer blockbuster, which I thought was kind of interesting. Speaking of repositioning, Aaron, you saw this story floating around the mm-hmm. internet earlier this week, as I did. The one that supposedly talks about Kevin Feige's plans for the Marvel Cinematic Universe after Avengers Endgame. 
This bit of news originally appeared on, on 4chan, which means that the phrase, take a pinch of salt, definitely applies. But then again, key portions of this news leak do line up with stuff that Marvel Studios insiders have previously shared with me. So uh, do you want to take the lead here? Well, I mean, when I first read it, because whenever I read news, I always say it's going to be baloney because it didn't come from the studio mouth itself. So therefore, it will mm -hmm. be speculation. Then it starts off with after phase four, there will be no more phases, which is something that you've been mm -hmm. saying for, I think, over six months now. Again, just to be clear here, it's after Endgame, there will be no more phases. Yeah, which, which you had been saying for many, many months. So after I read that, I went, oh, well... That sounds right in line with everything that Jim's been hearing so far from the, the Marvel camp, so we'll keep reading. And then after Endgame is released, you would have two distinct flavors of MCU. You'd have your Earthbound style, or what they're calling street level, and then you have mm -hmm. the Cosmic Realm. And obviously Spidey and Iron Man and Cap were all Earthbound heroes. They came from Earth. They usually don't travel out in space unless someone puts them in a rocket and they go there uh, against their will. Whereas things like Guardians of the Galaxy had been the sort of focal point for the cosmic side. And right now, we don't have a future Guardians coming up. So that mm -hmm. means that we've got uh, some further speculation as who's going to take over the cosmic side of things. And I think it makes a lot of sense considering where the MCU sits today, what we've seen mm -hmm. from the past, what we've heard rumors about, the very sparse rumors about the future, because they really haven't said anything outside of that one rumble of after Endgame phases are done, mm -hmm. we're doing it different. And uh, another thing about that was the fact that there may be a flashback movie that doesn't have to take place in our current timeline, much like uh, the very first Captain America, the first Avenger took place in World War mm -hmm. II. So they had speculated Black Widow could be one of those more prequel type movies, but still where you could have Scarlett Johansson, I don't think they would, they're talking about recasting that role. And then instead of going in the past, they also had the idea floated that there could be movies that take place in the future of the MCU as well, which in my mind, I'm just going to jump straight to Spider-Man 2099 or something like that. But uh, mm -hmm. there could be plenty of possibilities of some epic, and I don't want to say Earth X or Universe X because that's like the climactic end of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, so I wouldn't jump there straight away. But the fact that they could tell future stories and, and pull from anything that they're currently doing or what they plan on doing in the future and just tie it all together, or not necessarily rely on the continuity that they've established and just tell a story that happens in an alternate universe uh, I think could be really appealing because I don't want to say I'm sick of all the connected threads, mm -hmm. but I do feel bad for people who go into Infinity Wars and Endgame not having seen every last Marvel Cinematic movie because not as true. it's hard to gulp all that down. It's it's just like 31 flavors at Baskin Robbins all in one bucket and you, you're expected mm -hmm. to plow through that and notice every individual flavor and you just can't do that if you're no, new to I the agree. universe. I so I like the idea of, of kind of separating and telling its own story, whether it be set in the past or set in the future, but it doesn't have to be tied into... And it's, it's very similar to what DC is doing right now with a new Joker movie. It really doesn't share mm -hmm. any connective thread with what they've had with Justice League thus far, as far as we're aware. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm I'm all for the idea that Marvel's got a bazillion stories and they don't all have to be told chronologically and we don't have to wait for certain characters to be introduced. They can just jump to that now and shorthand it and say, all right, here's this dude out in space. Go. <laughs> okay. Now, now, speaking of which, all right, cosmic side, we'll get to how that's going to get started in mm-hmm. a bit, but supposedly when it gets to the street level stuff, that's going to actually kick off with Spider-Man Far From Home. Right. Well, while we're talking about Columbia's uh, Spider-Man-related project, did you see that Morbius announcement? Yeah. Well, it's not about Jared Leto being Morbius, right? Yeah, I mean, I know that that news broke a while ago, but what's intriguing to me is it now seems to be picking up steam. We've got a a director signed, Daniel Espinoza. We've got writers, Burke Shapeless and Matt Sazama, Uh who had worked on Netflix's Lost in Space reboot, but... For somebody like me, who's a huge fan of the Doctor Who reboot, it was really kind of interesting to see that Matt Smith, the 11th Doctor, has supposedly joined Morbius to play this film's villain, which isn't Morbius... Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Morbius started off life as a Spider-Man villain, right? He was... Yeah, and... I'm, I'm going to vent this out right now because you've, okay. you've breached a topic, and I'm sorry, Jim, but you've stepped on a landmine for me. So okay. it's about to go off. Morbius okay. appeared in Amazing Spider-Man issue number 101. Mm-hmm. I sold it because I was young and stupid for a nickel. Two months after I sold it, Morbius got his own line of comics, and that mm-hmm. five-cent issue immediately jumped to like uh, $150 or $200. To a 10-year-old, the rage, Jim. Do you know how many Star Wars toys I could have purchased with $100 back in the 80s? It was a lot. I've done the math. It's a lot. I am so angry at Morbius as a character that I just... But the thing is, because he he was birthed in the Spider-Man universe, I accept him. Like, Mm -hmm. the same way that Thor accepts Loki. You know he's going to betray you. You know he's going to hurt you, but you still love him. You still hope for the best. So that's my thing with Morbius. That's where he started Amazing Spider-Man 101 first appearance. Lost me a lot of money, Jim. I'll never forget it. (laughs) Okay. As long as we're discussing tender issues, uh, to circle back to to Venom for a moment, I just want to sort of postulate here and and wondering what you're thinking is, given the subject matter is a scientist who ends up taking on vampiric traits like fangs and thirst for blood and that sort of thing, do you suppose they'll do what they did with Venom and sort of release it in October to sort of take advantage of that, oh, that, absolutely. that group of people who only see horror movies around yeah. Halloween? Why not? I mean, I would not put a vampire movie in February where you've got mm-hmm. Valentine's Day. Uh, mm-hmm. Was it May is Mother's Day in there? I wouldn't put it there. Fourth of July doesn't fit. Christmas sure as heck doesn't fit. Yeah, mm-hmm. slam it straight into October. Okay. Oh, you mentioned uh, February just quickly there. It's worth noting that in honor of Black History Month, Disney is putting Black Panther back in theaters. And in fact, starting February 1st. Through the 7th, uh, I believe. It's going to yeah. be seven days. In addition to doing that, the Walt Disney Company also is donating $1.5 million to the United Negro College Fund. Well, again, the, the movie's made how much money? Mm-hmm how many billions for the company at this point so it's like yeah let's give 1.5 million that probably took that off of the top of bob Iger's change on his dresser and while we're talking about black panther Mm. the cast of black panther actually took home the screen actors guild award for the best cast in a motion picture so 
that shows that people are taking it seriously, though. Conversely, though, I, that there's been a rumor making the rounds that the writers of Black Panther 2 are having trouble coming up with a suitable villain for this highly anticipated follow-up. Any thoughts on... Well, again, you were saying you didn't know the Black Panther quite as well as you know the other. Yeah, Black Panther crept into some of my stories as well as some of the other cosmic characters because I mainly followed Spider-Man and Iron Man and Thor Mm -hmm. and Cap and the basic Avengers and then the Mm -hmm. basic X-Men lineup. And there are Mm -hmm. just so many, you know, thousands of characters that you just can't consume all of them unless you've got an unlimited pocketbook for comics, which I didn't in those days. It's interesting you mentioned the infinite number of Mm -hmm. characters, which... Back when Disney bought Marvel, they I, I seem to recall at one point they were talking about the 5,000 characters that they got right. with the, the Marvel library. And, and among those is a character called Shang-Chi, which Marvel Studios recently revealed they are developing their first ever superhero film that will be built around an Asian protagonist. This evidently was a character introduced in the early 1970s and his origin story Go something like this. Shang-Chi is the son of a Chinese-based globalist who was raised an educated son in a remote compound closed off to the outside world. Shang-Chi is trained in martial arts and develops unsurpassed skills. He's eventually set out into the outside world to do his father's bidding and then has to come to grips with the fact that his revered father may not be the humanitarian he is claimed to be and is closer to what others call him, the devil's doctor, who might also be centuries old, by the way. The seat makes Shang-Chi and his father bitter enemies. Sounds like there's some interesting meat on the bone there. We talked earlier on the show about David Callahan. Mm -hmm. He's been tapped to write the screenplay for Shang-Chi. Getting back to the the info that was posted on 4chan, Mm -hmm. supposedly Shang-Chi, Marvel Studio is going to try to make it an homage to the classic kung fu films of the 60s and 70s. Oh, sweet. I thought that was what Iron Fist was supposed to be. I'm so confused. Mm -hmm. They should have done all this with Iron Fist. I don't know. I'm confused. Again, just going to be interesting to see how this does get cast. And We talked about the street-level films that are supposedly in the works. I guess we should talk a little bit about what they're saying about the cosmic films. And I guess according to this 4chan thread that Guardians 3 was originally supposed to set the cosmic series of, of movies and emotion, but now supposedly that's going to be the Eternals. Though what's kind of interesting is going forward, there's no word on what the big arcs will be in the continuing story threads, but the Adam Warlock character, which I guess was hinted at yep. at the tail end of Guardians Volume 2, he'll be important to the cosmic series going forward. And then... There will be a reoccurring villain called Annihilus? Yeah. Can you explain who Annihilus is? Best shorthand I can give, Annihilus was uh, in the negative zone. He was the big bad. And Fantastic Four used to duke it up with him every once in a while. And it seemed like if you got tired of Galactus, because he Mm -hmm. would swallow up an entire planet and you needed some other big bad, uh, you'd switch over Mm -hmm. the negative zone and you'd deal with Annihilus for a while. 
What's kind of intriguing about the negative zone is this was really brought on the canvas through the Fantastic Four comics. Yeah. Right? That Reed Richards was the guy who discovered how to travel yeah. to the negative and zone. And all the colors were flipped backwards from what they should mm-hmm. be on the on the color wheel. So uh, whenever you were into the negative zone, it made for a very interesting, almost headache-inducing read. But it sure was a <laughs> heck of a lot of fun because you, were new, you knew you were somewhere very specific in the Marvel Universe, and that was cool. Got it. Well, all right. If... Feige is actually looking at using Annihilus. We've got our $71.3 billion acquisition of of those Fox film and television assets that will be completed in March. So that means as of March, Feige now has access to the Fantastic Four, which, again, given that family of superheroes dealings with, with Annihilus, you know, that would, in fact, open the door to bring the ruler of the negative zone on board in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as you mentioned, as, as the next big bad. Mm. So we mentioned the Eternals. It's worth noting that, you know, we're starting to get some, evidently there have been some screenings already of Captain Marvel and people are already whispering about the, what we see in the end credits. And supposedly we're going to get two scenes in the end credits of this thing. Okay. One will be, surprise, surprise, lead us to Endgame. Obviously, yeah. And... The second one is supposedly the, the interesting one. It's supposedly a teaser for The Eternals, which is this long-rumored next project for Marvel Studios. And, of course, you know, if we're talking about next big projects, obviously the one the Walt Disney Company has in the works right now is its subscription streaming service, which will supposedly launch later this spring. And you've just done a, a deep dive on Disney+. Plus. I'd like us to get around to talking about when we get back from our commercial break. And we're back. And what with those spinoff TV series that are already in the work for uh, a Disney subscription streaming service? Limited one featuring Loki, the Scarlet Witch, and the Vision, not to mention the Winter Soldier and Falcon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Disney Plus has been on Marvel fans' radar for for quite a while now, Aaron, but you seem genuinely concerned about what you're calling the perils of Plus? Well, I mean, everyone just thinks that Disney's flush with cash and they're building things, and it's easy to look at something like Star Wars Land and drool and go, oh, I can't wait until that's done without thinking about how much money is being invested to make that happen? Because it's not just Florida, it's also California, and they've got parks all across the world, so I'm sure that as soon as this proves to be a hit, they're going to be building Star Wars lands every five miles down the highway. Well, uh, actually, you're right about one. I know for a fact, given the the plans that have been announced for uh, Walt Disney Studios Paris, that in addition to the Marvel land that they're already bumping out the borders on now, there is a, in fact, it's kind of funny because it's back of the park. They have Star Wars land right next to Frozen land. So you have two giant Disney owned IPs that yes, the company is pouring mega bucks. You know, if they plan that right, Frozen land, if looked at from the right angle in Star Wars land could just be Hothland. <laughs> the backside of it just put a wampa I, and a tauntaun out there and boom done i just actually kind of worried about anna and elsa being taken down by by a wampa. <laughs> right. but all right i digress so. yeah well so yeah it's it's just the fact that it's easy to look at these things and go oh i can't wait for that to happen but when you look at 
the idea of Disney Plus, it actually does a lot of things that I know that Disney is expecting to happen. They can't go into this blindly and not see it happening, but a lot of people aren't discussing it or they're not thinking about it. So I just thought, well, let's talk about that for a second, because when you look at the overall grand scheme, it can almost be shutter inducing the ideas of what some of these things mean. So we'll start right off. If Disney's not going to be letting companies like Netflix license their properties because they're going to be moving those properties over to Disney Plus, they're cutting off an entire revenue stream from the entire world. It's putting up a wall and saying, we are no longer selling any of our shows to anyone ever again. No matter how much money you try and give us, we're not going to give it to you. That's the first implication because they need mm -hmm. content. And not only content, they need exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. That's Disney+. Plus. Right there, opening the gate, you are actually closing a money gate in the same swift stroke. Moving a step past that, Disney's now creating all of their own content. And because Netflix is no longer footing the bill, that's coming out of their own pocket. And they're saying, hey, you need to have Disney Plus because we've got stuff like The Mandalorian and all of these Marvel projects, and they are going to be cinematic quality, worth being in a theater in order for us to get your, what is it, 750 Jim? Was that the price point per month? The ESPN Plus, which was launched last year, that started with a price point of 499 My understanding is Disney wants to launch in the same ballpark, especially since... Didn't Netflix just bump up its price? Yeah. yeah, so if they've got any content at all that's exclusive, they could easily start at 10 bucks without batting an eyelash, I would think. I mm. think they'll have an introductory price, you know, that'll be substantially lower because that'll get us to our next point up ahead. When you start off with a service like that on day one, you have zero subscribers. That's the way that the world works, man. If it's one day you flip a switch from off to on and you get one subscriber. So certainly millions are expected to sign up in the first few months. However, in order to get the word out, you're going to need to advertise. That's going to cost even more money on top of that. You know, you can't just flip the switch and expect everybody to know somebody at Disney flipped a switch. I'm going to go see what's new for me today. You've got to talk to reporters, you've got to get on the news, you've got to buy some ads, and that's going to cost some money to get the word out that Disney Plus is A, coming to get you salivating for it, like Pavlov's dog, and then B, so when they actually ring the bell, you go to the bowl and start slobbering it up. The ESPN subscription service, back in September of last year, put out press releases all over the place about, hey, we're up to 1 million paid subscribers, but it took them five months to get to that point. Yeah. I, I think you're right. The notion that this is going to be a money maker from day one, particularly given the startup costs, oh, know, they're not. That's kind of my opinion. Yeah, there's no way that they're going to make money on day one, or right? even year one, I would suspect. And we're going to get mm -hmm. into the reasons why I think it's going to be much further out than that before they start turning a profit on this thing. But I do believe that there's a difference between sports and and the Disney lifestyle overall, because if you're a family person. You need something mm -hmm. to entertain the kids with that is safe, that you know isn't going to harm your child by them viewing it. That usually mm -hmm. skews you straight towards D Disneyland right off the bat. So, uh, yeah, you throw in a Disney product and you know that your kid's going to view something that is entertaining, will keep them off your back, and is not going to warp their uh, precious little minds at a young age. So I, I think that's got that going for it to where they're going to grow much faster than ESPN, where that's just for dad and some moms that, that like sports. The plus side of plus is that Disney has decades of content behind them that they can put up on day one. 
all of their family-friendly films, all of Star Wars, the entire MCU, and if they throw every special feature ever made, they further deepen the black hole of the time suck, which is what you want with a subscription service. You want to lure somebody in and let them get lost for weeks on end. And if you want to watch... 101 Dalmatians and you want to watch everything 101 Dalmatians related, it'll take you through special features, the writing of the music, the sequels, the live action, the prequels, whatever they're about to film with Gwen Stacy from Days Past. It's all there to just suck you in and eat up your time because you're paying for it by the month. So if they can make you spend three entire days on just Dalmatians, man, that's a great way to sponge up your time. So that, they got that going for them. But beyond that, they have to create all of their own content. And so we'll move a step past that. If they're going to rule out PG-13 and R-rated content and move all of that over to Hulu, that means everything they get from the Fox library is going to have to go over to... It's not going to make it over to Disney+. Plus. A good chunk of that, like Aliens franchise, that's over on Hulu. That's not making it to Disney+, Plus ever. I can't see a way that that would ever make it on Disney+. Plus. Your kid's sitting there watching Winnie the Pooh and the next thing, Queen Aliens, you know, ripping someone apart. No way. Bob Iger did say that he did see that there was a place at Disney for R-rated material, but as long as people were made aware of it. I mean, I just, I wonder if that means... Disney Plus might have a parental locks section. Oh, absolutely, or... yeah. The bare minimum you act, you throw that on, even if they didn't have uh, PG-13 content, there'd still be some sort of parental lock, just in case. I don't know why, but yeah, it's a safeguard, and I think that it would be wise of them to do that, and they probably already had that feature penciled in on day one of the, the coding of the project, so. Got it. So we'll move on that if they're not going to use PG-13 and R-rated content that they're going to get from their Fox acquisition, yeah, there still is a lot of stuff that they can move over to the Disney Plus that was either PG-G rated that can live over on Disney just fine and be additional content, but it's not the whole bucket. What they want right now is content, loads and loads and loads and loads of content, a never-ending supply of content. One thing I see, just a quick side note with Netflix that I think is rather genius, one thing that they do is they do a lot of comedy specials. And the reason for it is they're dirt cheap, man. You got to pay a comedian and a very small crew to film that. You really don't have to pay a load of writers and producers and, you know, an entire cast of big celebrities. You got to pay a dude or a chick a pile of money and then the supporting crew that, that filmed that event. So they're really, really cheap. They're easy to film in one session. So you're creating quick content and putting it out there. And it's a, it's a time filler. For people that like comedy, boom, you can sit there and watch comedies because they are fast and easy to produce and super, super cheap. And Disney needs something like that. And right now, they don't have anything super easy. They got complex. They've got super deep, you know, Mandalorian, people flying with jetpacks, stuff like that. And they want it to be like mm -hmm. photorealistic so you can believe this is really happening. That costs a ton of money. So they're not going to be just slapping up comedians and filling that content the quick, easy way. Moving on, if the entire Disney library is made available for a monthly fee, then there really isn't much reason to buy another Disney DVD or Blu-ray. So will Disney Plus end up accidentally choking off another lucrative money stream just by merely existing? And certainly there's still that staggering from the release between theater to digital, to DVD, and, and so forth. And then, you know, finally it will land on Disney+. Plus. 
So they can still stagger that. But really, if you're a family and you're budget conscious and you've subscribed to Disney Plus, it's the idea of I can have everything Disney ever makes without ever buying another DVD ever again. I don't think families are going to feel the need to subscribe to the service and also purchase those films on DVD. And I think they're going to lose, if not, not all of their money in that arena, but they're going to see it diminish further than what it has already. Uh, just a quick side note mm-hmm. here. I mean, it, again, very valid observation, but what's been kind of interesting is these days, the physical sales of Blu-rays and DVDs just are not what they were. Mm-hmm. To be honest, there's a whole generation of people, not myself, mind you, I'm, I'm still the idiot who likes having the Blu-ray and its slipcover available, but uh, there's a lot of folks who the two weeks out that you can just order something digitally and then it's it's sitting there on your tablet you know for your child to watch or to be able to load up in the car as you're driving along they're perfectly happy with that they don't need the physical dvd so you're right it is going to be interesting to see what happens to that revenue stream in the face of this where you know for 4.99 you get the entire library yeah. i mean you know why would you want to then spend $20 on a single film. Just so you can have the physical copy. Now, see, I've yeah. spent a lot of time, like my family had owned a video store back in the day, and I've got a literal room that is for nothing mm-hmm. but housing DVDs, Blu-rays, even HD DVD, I mean, the VHS, I've got the whole gamut, uh, and a whole mm-hmm. room for that. And I've also got an Apple TV, and I am now spending a lot of money, unfortunately, just buying movies on a digital service that I already own a physical copy of, just so I don't have to go upstairs, dig through a specific room for all my content, and then bring it down and put it in a player. It's worth five bucks to me to just buy a digital copy and sit my fat bum on a couch and click play and not have to move. So yeah, I'm, I've gotten off of the whole, I need to have a physical copy thing because the speeds are fast enough that I can get 4K quality. I don't have to worry about buffering or anything stupid like that. When I hit play, it just plays and it looks glorious. So I don't I don't need to go upstairs into my library anymore. But anyway, moving on. If you couple all of the stuff that we've just been talking about, the, the loss of financial streams through whether it be DVDs or not licensing to other companies because you're now hogging all of your own property for yourself. And then you're building things like Star Wars Land and Disney spent over $60 billion on the Fox acquisition and a couple more billion for new Star Wars Lands. And if Amazon is going to spend a billion dollars on a Lord of the Rings TV show, as they claim they are. I'm certain that Disney's going to also have that, I don't want to say pissing war, but -hmm. I think they're going to have a pissing war where they're going to go, oh yeah, well, we're also going to spend a billion dollars too on uh, the Star Mm -hmm. Wars stuff over here or whatever. And not to belabor the obvious, but when you think about Comcast revealed that Universal is getting its own streaming service up out of the ground, and Warner Brothers is well along in its own streaming service. I mean, it's just, it's not fighting a fight in just one direction. There's a number of giants with very deep pockets entering this very same arena, all competing for that four ninety nine to ten ninety nine fee a month. Yeah, and I really wish that this battle would have gone the other way, because one of the things I liked about something like Netflix is the Mm -hmm. fact that it was all under one roof. I didn't have Mm -hmm. to care about who made Romancing the Stone. 
I really want to watch that, but I can't because I don't know which library it's under because I don't know if it was a Warner Brothers picture or a Fox picture. Uh, what was Orion acquired by later on? And where would that, end, you know, how is it now? That's just mm-hmm. the dumbest thing when you're in have a massive library is to have to figure out who made what picture when, who acquired them. So where would they be listed now in my five different libraries so I can watch it? And so when it came to Netflix, it didn't matter if it was a Fox property or, or whatever. It was just as long as all the big companies like Warner Brothers, they didn't have an outlet, you know, really. So they're like, yeah, here's some movies. Give us money. Well, they're not showing in theaters. They're, not, they're just sitting here on a shelf. Yeah, we'll sell them for a little bit. Take them. That's why I like things like Netflix. And now everybody's going, hey, we got to have our own streaming service, too. And it's just like, man, I really wish you guys could find a way to consolidate under one roof. That's why I'm buying stuff off of Apple TV, because I can buy from any studio and it's just there. So with all of this taken into consideration, Disney's burning through a mountain of cash. And it's going to take a very long time before they start even making their first dollar back on this project. And... Mm -hmm. If you invest a billion dollars and you charge around $10 a month, you're going to need 10 million subscribers for 10 months in order to get that billion back. And, you know, numbers just don't work out that quick and easy because you're going to have your operational costs during that whole time that's going to be leeching from that money, you know, to keep the thing running. So they're going to have to grow very, very quickly. They're going to have to charge a reasonable rate and they're going to have to have a mountain of content. And then the hard part after that is they have to keep creating that content nonstop for the rest of their lives and grow their audience and never reduce it. That's the challenge. And you're cutting off, you know, several financial gates in that process. So it has to be really, really successful. Yeah. Folks who are intrigued about what Aaron is talking about here should probably circle April 11th on their calendar because that's what the company is now calling Disney Investor Day. And what they're planning on doing on that day is basically popping the hood, so to speak, on Disney+. Plus. They're going to provide detailed financial information regarding their direct-to-consumer uh, subscription service then the financial community especially is intrigued as to what the real hard startup costs are. And just in the past week or so, for for example, there was a feature piece in Variety. Disney is plowing the road, trying to get this info out there. But at the same time, they are changing the way they're doing their bookkeeping, largely because of things like the Fox acquisition, trying to sort of reposition all of their businesses to reflect what they see or what they're hoping will be this colossal sea change uh, at Disney once they get their subscription service up and running. But pivoting back to to Marvel here just for a sec, given what Kevin Feige has in the works for the Marvel Cinematic Universe and in much the same way, changing the way they've quite successfully been doing business with these Phase 1, Phase 2, Phase 3, and all of these interconnected stories, and now... If the 4chan information is true, taking all of these IPs and now splitting them, uh, some stories are going to be told at street level and some are going to be set in a a cosmic setting and we're going to get prequels and jump forwards and that sort of thing. This all is going to cost some very serious coin just as the Disney Plus thing is going to cost. And you have to wonder in a situation like, like that, especially if what we're hearing is true, that Marvel Studios is planning on proceeding with with rebooting some of these film franchises that Fox genuinely struggled with, like Fantastic Four. And 
Speaking of that, you, you're looking to introduce a, a brand new feature here at the Marvelous Disney podcast right. called Fan Casting, which, uh, by the way, I love this idea. So can you explain a little bit what the idea is behind fan casting and which set of characters would you like to kick this feature off with? Fan casting are basically the conversations I used to have with friends back in the day at the old radio ranch. And uh, we'd be uh, off doing our own thing after work, and we'd be talking about Marvel movies or something like that. And we go, oh, you know who would be really awesome as? And then you insert Marvel superhero here. And then you say a name of an actor. Like back in the day, Tom Selleck was being looked at as Doctor Strange because, face it, Tom Selleck had a fantastic mustache. So fan casting, but just one person is asking if you could just take anybody in the world, actor, director, writer, composer, whatever, who would you take and pluck them into the MCU? What would their role be and why are you doing this? So the person that I'm bringing in is our inaugural edition of fan casting, but just one person, is Alfonso Cuaron to direct the Fantastic Four. The reason why I think that this is the perfect fit is after watching Gravity, one thing that Alfonso does is he does a very beautiful, complex, extended, uninterrupted, long take. He did it in Children of Men. Uh, he does it again in the opening of Gravity, right before we get to the disaster. And if you watch the behind the scenes for Children of Men, how they achieve that long take is just mind-boggling complicated because all of the actors are dodging a, a camera that's stuck to the roof of a car that's mounted inside and kind of swinging by their heads and changing all these positions. It's really fascinating. So anyway, he's technically brilliant. And then while I was watching Gravity, the fact that he stuck with the fact of scientific principles, like there is no sound in space, I thought was an epic decision. The way that you could hear things through the vibration of the rubber gloves of the spacesuit but when the disaster is happening and there's all this epic carnage being flung around on the screen, but it's totally silent. And as an audio nerd, I was so giddy that someone was taking science fact and plugging it right into their science fiction because I was plugged into that moment like nobody else in that theater was. So I loved him for that. It was a brave move. Everybody would have put crashes and bangs and explosions to go silent. Bold move. Loved him for it. He's... Also did a, he was the writer of a movie called And Your Mother 2, which mm -hmm. has got a different name in Spanish that I can't pronounce, so we're going to use the English translation of And Your Mother 2. And it was about a complex relationship that felt very authentic and not manufactured. It was one of those simple movies. Some people might call it an artsy movie because not a lot happens. It's about three different people in a love triangle and it's simple, it's quiet. Um, but it's complex, it's deep, it's raw emotional events happening, and it, it was a pretty beautiful movie. And so mm -hmm. the fact that he can handle a delicate balance of relationship, the fact that he's got some very technical panache with these long takes and really thoughtful scene-building techniques, the fact that he's done amazing science fiction in space makes me think that this guy could easily easily be a perfect choice to direct the Fantastic Four for when they're brought into the MCU for the first time. The idea of it just, it gives me goosebumps 
And the other reason is a lot of people may not be familiar with his work or his name. So it's one of those things where you go, Alfonso Coron, I don't know who this guy is. And then you have to go IMDB him and look up some of his films and bless you if you even spend the time to go watch a couple of them. Uh, because there's one out right now called Roma that I have yet to see, but I've heard amazing things about. And I just, mm -hmm. I love his work. I crave it. So every time something's out, I usually jump on it right away. If you haven't heard of him, go check him out. Watch a couple if you watch Gravity and Your Mother Too. It's a Spanish movie, so you're going to have to read subtitles or listen to a dub version, which some people are not fond of, but oh well, get over it. And then if you also were to watch uh, Children of Men, grounded sci-fi, some beautiful work in that, you would see where I can get my basis of an idea of him being the perfect director for Fantastic Four movie. And this is the guy who directed the third Harry Potter movie, Prisoner of Azkaban, which hit theaters back in June of 2004. And the two films that have preceded that, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, uh, or excuse me, uh, I'm sorry, using the UK name, uh, Sorcerer's Stone and Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, they were relatively safe, straightforward adaptations of the J.K. Rowling books. But what really caught people's attention with Prisoner of Azkaban is he got him, you know, Harry and Hermione and, and Ron out of the, their robes into normal teenage clothes and had them behaving like actual teenagers. And the visual language changed up and it, it got that much more ambitious and, you know, and really sort of opened the door for much darker material in the, you know, the next five of the Potter films. And this is a guy who can work in a franchise world but make it special, make it different, but at the same time, be respectful of the source material. So you're right, you know, from, you know, if he were to get to play in Marvel's sandbox and especially with the Fantastic Four characters, I mean, we've already seen two different takes on the Fantastic Four with Fox. Mm. Maybe this is the third time's the charm. Find a way to really make these characters work. Well, so. the, the way I feel about it is that until Marvel's had a crack at it, nothing else counts. Mm -hmm. Like I've said before, there's some good and there's some bad with the X-Men movies that Fox has put out. But until Marvel does it, that's when we'll see the real X-Men for the first time. And I think, you know, there will be plenty of fans who have enjoyed the Fox stuff who hopefully will really, really super love the Marvel version when they finally get to dig their teeth into that material. But yeah, I'm not really surprised when Fox mishandles a property that's not theirs or Sony mishandles something. Until Marvel takes a swing at it, then uh, nothing else matters right now in my mind. Well, let's see what happens going forward. But, but anyway, I, I love this idea, the whole fan casting. And in fact, if any of you folks out there who are listening to this particular Mud episode have ideas of your own about fan casting, you want to send those along, we'd be happy to hear about them. But... Wow, I think we covered a lot for this show, Aaron. I <laughs> yeah. I think we can both, both go lie down and take a nap now. So on behalf of uh, Mr. Adams, uh, who does uh, not only my co-host here, but does a wonderful job of editing all of the podcasts that we do here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, the Disney Dish with Len Testa, mm -hmm. that's fine-tuning with Drew Taylor, mm -hmm. that's looking at Lucan's film with Dan Z. Mm -hmm and Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, and of course the show you're listening to, The Marvelous Disney Podcast. Well and done. Thank you for listening and if you could head over to iTunes and rate our show and talk it up to friends, that would be very helpful. 
on behalf of Aaron Adams, thank you for listening tonight, and we'll be back again soon with another Marvelous Disney podcast. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.